Kia ora everybody and welcome to another episode of the Stag Raw. This episode we interview strength and conditioning and I guess lifestyle coach Ray Kelly. Um, Ray is a diverse human and of course that's why we wanted him on the Stag Raw. He lives a philosophy of continuing to learn, continuing to be better and continuing to improve the lives of others which what resonates so strongly with me that being what I live my life by trying to improve lives so Ray has a diverse background diverse interest levels and makes for an excellent conversation Ray is has Aboriginal heritage and uh, we go deep into a few topics which um, yeah the podcast itself takes us on quite a journey um this one I didn't really have any notes for. Um, I'd just come across Ray on Twitter. He kindly agreed to come on the podcast and we had an awesome conversation. One that I'm sure you get lots and lots of takeaways from. Um, and one to save up is probably one of our better ones. One of the uh, more interesting ones. And, and I'm really pleased to bring this to you um, and excited. So let's get into it. It's a great chat. Ray's an absolute legend. Make sure you check him out on all his handles um, and enjoy. Cheers. Kia ora, everybody. Um, we're sitting down with a bit of an Aussie legend, really. Ray Kelly um, works in the strength and conditioning field, but that definitely doesn't define him. And so absolutely personifies what we're about on the stagger or someone that's got a broad range of interests, knowledge, and, and doesn't stop learning. So... Ray, what have you been doing this weekend? It's been arduous. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I, I got back from remote New South Wales on Thursday and then I've just been painting a house uh, the last couple of days and then heading to Sydney to help paint another house. I got dragged in <laughs> uh, and, um, and then sort of into, into work for a couple of days and then back out remote again. Nice. And you said you got the motorbike in the garage. What did, what did you plan to do with it? <laughs> I've got a beautiful uh, heritage, uh, sorry, I've got a, um, a beautiful um, uh, fat boy low and uh, it's all customised and um, yeah, mate, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a ripper. It uh, just sits nice and I, I live on the coast and there's this water, there's lakes and there's uh, beaches everywhere. So you go you just right along the coast. There's roads everywhere that, that, that are just beautiful to cruise. Nice. And so we're, we're about to, I guess, based when you're not in, in the remote lands. Yeah. I'm based on the central coast. I mainly work in Sydney, Newcastle when I'm sort of in the sort of bricks and mortar side of things. Uh, but because uh, we do a lot of online work. But uh, yeah, central coast. I, I love it here. I'm from the bush originally, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful spot. Nice. So... I guess that leads us in. Who is Ray Kelly today? Ray Kelly today? Well, yeah, very different to the Ray Kelly of 27 years ago. And um, I, I, I guess you'd have to go back there to, to really understand. All prior to that, I left school at 16 uh, and pretty much became a labourer and trades assistant in construction and things like that. Uh, it took me a number of years to get uh, a passion for something, but... I soon learned that you could work in gyms and wear white and hang around girls all day. So that was a big selling point for me. And so, yeah, 1991, 
I started picking up weights for free in a local gym that was only open three hours a day, three days a week. So I was, I was actually painting houses during the day, hence the painting uh, <laughs> nowadays. They dragged me in. But um, yeah, so and started off like that and then sort of went to Tamworth for a few years and then got to Sydney. And within months, I was with the Institute of Sport and sort of uh, preparing athletes for world, world championship events. Um, and then sort of uh, after a couple of years, uh, after seven years in the industry, I did my first degree, so which was an exercise science degree. And then sort of another five years later, I did, when well, no, about eight years later, I did a master's in education. So I'm a qualified PE teacher as well, secondary PE teacher, and now doing my master's in research in the remission of type 2 diabetes and going on to a PhD in that. But, you know, along the way, it was, um, you know, prepared athletes for the Atlanta Olympics of 96 and the Sydney Olympics of 2000 sort of moved more into health after that away from sport but with the sports side of things trained about 11 world champion fighters you know uh, primarily boxing but some of the UFC guys here and there um, kickboxing as well um, but uh, yeah worked on the contender the reality boxing show here on Fox 8 and trained two winners from two attempts on the biggest loser so when they go home they're allocated a trainer so the first years I I sort of had one guy and each year my guy won. So anyway, look, there's, there's lots of stuff that I've done over the years. Um, I'm just one of those guys, I just put my hand up and say, yeah, I think I can do that. But it's not how I was raised. It's not who I was when I was 16 and left school. I, the thought of going to university would have just made my eyes glazed over. And if I would have understood just how much physics and chemistry was in a sports science degree, I never would have went in the first place. <laughs> it would have scared me away. But these days, yeah, we, we do a lot of work in remote uh, New South Wales. We're um, reversing diabetes, so um, getting people uh, reduced medication, off medication, uh, but, yeah, blood pressure uh, as well as um, insulin. Mate, that's, that's epic. Um, you said there that you sort of very quickly went from picking up weights to working at the AOS and you hadn't done any formal education yet. What do you think was key to that rapid rise? Mate, it's quite interesting, actually. It was, it was New South Wales Institute I was involved with here in Sydney, um, but, but the structure is under the same thing. Uh, but I, I collected, once I started working in gyms, I started collecting programs, and I've still got them stored away 27 years on. So when, I, when someone came in, especially an, an elite athlete, I'd, I'd ask them if I could get a copy of their program back then. Everything was on paper, so they weren't using apps or anything. They'd have their workouts, so it could have been from the Queensland rugby league comp or the NRL and I've lived in really good areas for athletes, athlete development. So you know, a lot of country guys go on and, and represent Australia in a number of sports. So I had access to quite a few and so I would just ask questions and try and work it out. And then I got hold of a book uh, by a legend in periodization called Tudor Bomper. Mate, it opened my eyes. It took me probably, like I used to have to read the paragraphs over and over again because I just couldn't quite get my head around this whole whole sports science speak. But but I did, I ended up working out how to periodize, and that's probably one of my strengths now in planning, which is what sort of why my, my uh, patients get very, very good weight loss as well. But when I got to Sydney, I started sort of working at a gym and one of the guys was a coach with the Institute and he said that we, we got talking on periodization and I started talking about my beliefs, which was Tudor Bomper's beliefs. And um, he said, oh, our, our head coach is trying to talk to us about all this, but we don't understand this format. And the, the uh, coach was from East Germany originally, uh, dual gold medalist from there. So he'd come through that structure under Bomper and all that. So 
he, um, yeah, so he, he introduced me and I understood what he was trying to do. So I took over the um, cross-training side of things. Awesome. And you, and you said you picked up a book after leaving school at 16. What do you think was the switch from, hey, I can't be bothered with the schooling stuff to sitting down and reading a book and not just, you know, going through it, having to read over and over and over again? How, how do you think your mentality changed? Look, I, I don't I think I think I just... I just was passionate. I just wanted to learn more. And I, and I really, and this was before I even went to uni, because when I went to uni, I thought I knew a fair bit. I had the tracksuits to prove it, you know, with all the rep teams and all that sort of stuff as a trainer. And I walked into uni thinking, yeah, I know a fair bit. And I walked out of uni, you know, I graduated in 2002. And like ever since that day, you like, I still know I've got so much to learn. Don't get me wrong, I know a fair bit, and I know a fair bit more than most. But I've still got so much to learn as well. There, there's just, yeah, like you, you could just pick one little part, whether it's uh, disease, nutrition, exercise, like all, all parts of health. There's so much we don't know. And I mean, everyone in this world. Nice. It's that um, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. And, and That's very true. After um, Joe Rogan's little debate the other day with Chris Kresser and, and Joel Kahn, um, Sean Baker, the carnivore guy who we've had on before, sort of looked at it and said, you know, when it comes to nutrition, we've got a 10,000-piece puzzle and we've got about 10 pieces of it and we're trying to go, here's the picture. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and the really frustrating part of the whole nutrition side of things, because I've had to move into that. So with my my company, we, we train staff on how to provide programs. So we train them on nutrition and exercise and, and disease and all that and medications to some to some extent as well and, and effects so but the frustrating thing with uh, nutrition is that it's it seems to be pushed forward as science sealed and delivered we know the facts we know this is the best way to do it it is so not true and not only is it not true it flies in the face of the, the whole premise of research the whole premise of research is to prove yourself wrong so you can get better. And that's exactly what we do with our program is we're always trying to work out, okay, so why are people, why can't people adhere to it or what do people complain about and, and how do we, you know, work out how, how to get around that so that more people aren't feeling that way. And that's exactly the attitude you've got to have, not, oh, no, we know what we're doing, and then just watch disease build and build and build. Like, no, no, we know what we're doing. They're just not following it. So why aren't they following it? Like it's it's not rocket science, you know. Yeah, and um, is that what's quite good with working with the community? You do you build a real relationship and and find out what's ticking about each individual. Yeah, look, I I, I always keep my finger on the pulse. So as my career's grown, I've always seen patients like I always will because I think that's the only way to really know how the program's going. You can't rely on staff to transfer that information. Uh, because it's very, it's very individual for each person and the way they communicate it is very, very important as well. Um, but, um, yeah, no, look, I, I love it. I just spoke recently, just last weekend, at a conference on obstacles and opportunities in Aboriginal health, and I'm sure that a lot of people turned up thinking I was going to talk about the community, like about, you know, make problems with alcohol, social issues, and all these other myths that go in there. Uh, but I was saying that there's two main uh, obstacles when it comes to Aboriginal health, and this is health in general. The system, it's not designed for success. 
the health system itself. It's designed for diagnosis and prescription. And, that, and it's not the, the fault of the doctors or the nurses or any, you know, that, that's not their fault at all. This is just, this is just the system itself. Uh, and the workers, the health workers. So we've got some amazing health workers who are always learning and adapting and, and so on. But then we've got others who just sort of bundy on, bundy off. It's not really their passion. They're just there for the paycheck. And they're not really interested in learning. They're, they just want to do what they do. They learn what they did previously and they're going to stick to that. And, you know, they're, they're just passengers. Mm. And I, I guess that goes on to what, what you're doing and, and that's continually learning and realising that there's always something to learn, doesn't it? The best thing I ever did, I started uh, travelling a number of years ago, probably about eight years ago, to the major international conferences, so the European Congress on Obesity and the International Congress on Obesity. Um, and you get to meet all the top researchers that you've been, been citing through your research, you know. Uh, and, yeah, just, just being able to bounce ideas off them and get feedback on what you're doing and then find out what they're doing and, and even talk about their past research and sort of say, well, you found this, but why didn't this happen or why do you think this happened? That sort of information is invaluable, you know, like you just you can't put a price on that sort of thing. So that's why I'm so confident in what I do. I know the direction of the industry. I know the way it's going. Um, and, yeah, our, our results speak for itself for that way. Nice, man. So we're talking on Friday about specifically um, one of your diabetes patients. Can you can you share that two weeks? Was it two weeks you said in their offense or, or something like that? Oh, right. Yeah, that was um, only Margot. Margot, yeah. So Margot, um, it's just amazing. She let us film her. So we, we, we sort of went out to launch the program in Burke and we let the community know. And to give you an idea, we had 40 people turn up just at the drop of a hat. So that shows you how easy it is to get community involved. It's like these stories about, oh, people don't turn up. No, they don't turn up because you've got nothing to offer, nothing different. People are sick of just getting a T-shirt, a cap and a brochure and sent on their way. They don't want that. They want results. So they'd heard a bit about my program and um, Annie Margot turned up and, and she was a shell of a person. She was um, telling us about her 30 years as a diabetic. She was 59, uh, but just how overwhelmed she was. She'd been on insulin for 20 years four to five injections a day. She's on Genumet as well, which is a combination therapy drug as well. Seeing kidney specialists, heart specialists, all the normal stuff of a 59-year-old Aboriginal woman these days. Um, you know, non-drinker, doesn't eat that badly, but obviously something wasn't right. Uh, she slept all day. She retired at 58 because she just was tired all the time. She worked in the local school. And she just couldn't, and she'd done that for many years. Um, and, and, a, and a university graduate, by the way, too. Um, so educated lady. Um, just couldn't get her diabetes under control. And she started crying, even on camera, you know, like just saying, I'm just overwhelmed with this disease. I don't understand insulin. I don't understand carbs. And this is a woman who's been through our system for 20 years. I mean, 30 years as a diabetic, but 20 years on insulin and still did not understand it and the amount of health specialists she would have seen over that time. And I'm not blaming now, I'm just saying it, it's, it's the system itself. Anyway, long story short, um, she decided to sign up to the program. Uh, and by this, yeah, she was also uh, in the process of buying a motor scooter to get around town. She couldn't walk up steps. She had a ramp put in at home, um, but had trouble getting around. Uh, depressed, the whole bit. Anyway, she starts the program. Within two weeks, she's walking four kilometers every morning. 
Um, she's um, reduced her insulin by 80% by that point and uh, just couldn't believe the energy. So much energy. And then uh, in seven weeks, she's off insulin altogether. And this was, this was my decision. This was her doctor. Her body forced her to go off insulin. So it was, that was the, the thing. Some people can't get their head around it. I, I quite often get asked by health professionals, how does a doctor feel you know, when your patients have got to go off insulin? Like it's going to be an issue. Like I've never met an unhappy doctor for that yet. Like they, they want that. that. That's the whole idea of having a lifestyle intervention is to reduce medications. It it's, should be the, the first thing. It's always in the textbooks as the first things, but it, it's not the way it is in our system. It's just advice, so lose weight. Anyway, uh, another six weeks after that, she came off genuine. So now she's just on metformin, which is your entry-level drug that she would have started on 30 years ago. So she, she does little, we've got a little park session, a uh, little uh, like outdoor exercise area in Burke and she does a 4K walk and then she does a little 20 minute circuit I've designed for her, which includes a bit of shuffle running and everything. And a lot of people would sort of look at that and think, oh, and, and a kidney specialist he, he doesn't need to see her again. So she, she's all fine with that as well. But a lot of people would um, say, oh, she must have lost a lot of weight. She lost like eight kilos. That's it. That's it. And that's the thing, like, it doesn't take a lot of weight loss. We, we do big weight loss, but it doesn't always, especially in the Aboriginal community, it doesn't take a lot of weight loss to see very, very good improvements. Nice. And <clears throat> I'm always going on about the Verita Health study because that's, that's out there. And it's, it's that first six weeks before people have even lost weight that the results come in. And then, like you say, it gives them freedom to then do the exercise do more, have better energy, have have a better way of life, and then then in comes the motivation to stick at it. Um, that's one of the things you always hear. And in, in, in the second Joe Rogan debate was with with uh, I think his name's Lane Norton, and he's always going on about you know sustainability of diet. But uh, has it been on? Has it? Yeah, has that one been on? It was on. Yeah, um, he kind of took over the the show, but that, that's uh, it was his prerogative, I guess. But yeah, you know, sustain, sustainability and what, what makes it sustainable. And like you say, if we can just start seeing results like that and getting off medication and um, I was reading, uh, it's called, his name's David Unwin, the, the diabetes.uk. Um, they did a similar intervention, same idea. They had 19 people, 18 went through it, 16 of them reversed their markers and the other two, they lost a ton of weight too, but reversed their markers, lots of them came off the blood pressure. And so... How, ex how exciting is it, mate, to, like I said, to have a lady in tears to then be living a life like that? What, what's it, what, what does that do for you? I'm getting goosebumps talking to you, mate. Look, th th this happens all the time. And she's not the only one, too. So we've got other people who uh, have in that same program that have done something similar. Look, it's great. I mean, even one lady coming off insulin in seven days. Uh, and she was a board member of the local medical service. So, you know, look it's it's uh, 27 years I've been doing it, I don't get sick of it. I, like it's just uh, two nights ago, I was sent a, um, a photo of one of, a patient from my, one of my past programs uh, who had run into two people who were on my current program mm. and they uh, took a selfie, the three of them together, smiling, you know, I've lost this, I've lost this, I've lost this. And um, yeah, I was just kicking back at night, just sort of, you know, tired after my day of painting and just to get, messages like that just out of the blue that's what i love it's and that's what's good about social media you just get tagged in a picture all of a sudden and you just go oh, wow like 
it's a good job. It's a good job. It, you know, it's um, and, and you know, th this is the way it's all going. You're talking about Lane. Like I've had a few words with him online a bit because, like you know, you know, he's pretty passionate about um, about carbs. Look, I, I believe people can be healthy with carbs. There's no doubt about it. But uh, it, when it comes to diabetes, man, look. <laughs> Just go out to the community. It's whether it's the carbs themselves or whether it's the fact that they can't stop eating them once they start eating them. Look, there's no doubt that people uh, with type two diabetes perform better on less carbs. That's for sure. Look, that's. I was just at Austria recently, and um, uh, Professor, um, I can't believe I've just gone blank. Um, Oh my goodness! I'll think of his name. Where's he from? He's from Sweden, but uh, I've just gone blank. He's uh, one of the leading researchers in health over the last, God, I just yeah, twenty odd years, thirty years, and he's helped set up a lot of the guidelines. And he came out and said, you know, now that they've, for what they know now, they realise that, you know, some patients do really diabetics do perform better on lower carbs, they're gonna go back over their past research to see if they've missed anything. So, you know, th this is the direction it's all going. And if you check out the direct trial in the UK, which is um, by Professor Mike Lean, uh, they've, they've got a good study going where they should be releasing their three-year follow-up very soon. They've done their one-year follow-up, but basically it's the first ever trial in, in primary care, so in medical centers uh, where remission is actually the um, the outcome measured. So it's, it just hasn't been done before. Like it's accepted it can be done, but there's been no research around it. So what they found was, I think it was those who lost 15 kilos or more, um, they uh, were 85% went in remission. Um, and if those who lost 10 kilos or more, 75%, and those who lost at least five kilos, 50%. And that, what they did, they had patients who were uh, on just oral medication, uh, but they took them off all their blood pressure and all their diabetes medication. They had to have been diagnosed within the past three years. And uh, yeah, they showed that, you know, uh, it was very, very effective. They used a shakes component, so meal replacement shakes first, so 800 calories, and then moved on to a transition into food and so on. So different formats um, suit different people, but yeah, that was good. And then you've got um, Dr. Um, Shaguli from Q8, who's been doing some great work on people on multiple doses of insulin. Um, so they, they, she works with patients who can't control their blood sugars too well, even on multiple doses of insulin. And the results she gets, and that's the average I think is 23 years as a diabetic. So some people would look at Mike Lean's research and say, oh yeah, but that's within three years, you know, that's different. It's not like beta cells in the pancreas can be uh, replenished or rejuvenated many, many years later. And that's what we've seen with Margot and many of our patients here as well. Wow. No, that's, that's pretty awesome. And, and like you said, going back to the Australian system, I, I was under the impression in New Zealand that we weren't doing a great job. Um, but since coming here, and I don't know if it's because where I go into casinos, semi-rural or, or water, but I um, haven't had too many top two diabetics that are um, just on metformin. A lot of them have thrown it away and um, a ton of them are on insulin and they're not even on a, on a controlled level of insulin. It's this dose in the morning, this dose at night. And I'm going, 
well, what's that? What's that even based on? And and the, the, barely any of them know what HBA one C is, let alone what it, what it actually is. And I just go, well, what's going on here? So I've I've been writing letters mentioning the the little bit of research and and having known the Gary Fickney story, been doing it quite nervously. And but luckily Friday, the day that we talk, it's come out that APRA has apologised to him and. It appears that now as health professionals under APRA, we are allowed to suggest dietary interventions to save our patients. So how, 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 how has it been from being part of it to, to not just witnessing it and enjoying it and going, am I doing the right thing? How's it been being a part of it and, and having this yeah. alternative Look, view? A, yeah, it's, it's a fine line. So basically I started working this way in 2006 and, and I sort of was starting to think that maybe I'm in the wrong profession because I was following what I was taught and it just didn't work. It doesn't work really. For the majority, you'll get some good good results here and there, but it just wasn't working. So I was pretty disillusioned with the whole career in, in, in the weight loss side of things and stuff. So, But I, I then started reading the research for myself and once I started reading, you just go, oh, wait up. You know, like it actually says this and this is what I was taught. So that's when I started having my eyes open to what was out there. And that's why I always take on board anyone, even, um, you know, you've spoke about Lane before, and I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but there's no doubt he's got some good points. And, and that's how you've got to go into these discussions is you need to be taking on everyone's perspective because there's no one size fits all. And you're going to find some patients that are going to work really well on a higher carb diet compared to a lower carb, but, but majority are going to be different to that, you know, but you know, it's it's been fantastic, uh, but the the reason why I felt sort of forced into it because it was like how can you when you see the results when you start playing around with it and seeing what can be done and you see the results you can't unsee it you couldn't ever go back to the old way and just go oh well this is what we're going to do you can't do that and yeah it's um, it's been good and and I, don't, I think a lot of people don't realise just how important that uh, APRA um, overturn is um, an apology how important that is to Australian health. It's, uh, it's crucial that there is transparency and all this, but not only that, like Gary is a doctor and if he can't provide you know, advice, then who can, you know, like don't, don't start believing that dietitians are the only people that can, because don't get me wrong. We've got some amazing dietitians in this country. We've got some amazing dietitians, but like in all industries, we've got some that work better than others. Um, so we can't just blanket everyone as being, I oh, know they've done that degree, they're the experts. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, no, it was a pretty pretty bizarre story and, and many of the comments uh, on Twitter was, I, I tell my patients about this all the time and they're just so confused that there was an issue, you know, and, um, you know, Gary's spoken to Sean Baker and they're both sort of in the same boat, like, what, what did we do wrong? We were... We were saving people's health. <laughs> I know. That's, that's, that's the crazy thing. But, you know, I've had um, you know, pharmacists saying to me, so when people come off insulin, what, what do they do with the insulin they got? And I said, throw it out. And I said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> if they don't need it, what are they going to do with it? You know what, you want them to donate it. You're like, but they, they think it's just crazy to take people off insulin. I've, I've had a, a director for a whole area health service so it looks after many many hospitals say to me so doctors are okay taking patients off insulin <laughs> that's that's like someone very high up 
in the area and, and they're not seeing it and it's accepted in research, absolutely accepted in research. All doctors would agree, but that's not what it's like at the coalface. So that's why the education comes in and, and you know, like there's no judgments or anything like that. It's just purely you've got to get to a stage where you accept that what's been going on hasn't worked. We know it hasn't worked. Like the Grattan report from 2016 showed that it was a chronic failure in primary care, if you want to check that out. You know, that, that showed that what less than 50% of all type 2 diabetics that are seen in primary care, so that's all the medical centres across the country, less than 50% achieve a HbA1c under 7. Less than 50%. Now, it is not that difficult to get people under 7. It's not difficult at all. But less than 50% can do that and that's with all the endocrinologists and dietitians and physiologists, insulins, oral tablets, that's all of that included. No, it's a, yeah, that's brings me on to what I've been trying to trying to deal with uh, in optometry. We just had a, a rejig of our of our guidelines and they all seemed pretty good except for one little mention that we should be telling our patients to go on another medication, uh, which is uh, phenofibrate, which um, works in what it's planned to do, and it lowers LDL and raises um, HDL. So that, oh, sorry, lowers triglycerides, raises HDL. So that should be good. Um, which was then no more effective than the statin. That's probably not really effective anyway. And out of these two studies, they managed to find that maybe it might reduce diabetic retinopathy for someone that already has it. Uh, sorry, the need for laser for someone that already has it. And I sort of looked through it and got taken to the uh, College of GPs of Australia and they sort of had done an analysis and there was five people um, in the worst group who are at the biggest risk factor, uh, biggest risk of having complications with this medication. I was, I was thinking this is absolute rubbish and the the two studies that, that are looking at it go to back to what you just said there that putting people on too many medications actually increases their mortality and doesn't help them. Uh, they put on more weight and I wonder why, like you say, that in the long run, none of this is successful, but that's the system we're in and it makes its way into the guidelines. And, yeah. you know, you're banging your head against the wall. <laughs> no, no, it's true. And, and just recently over at um, the European Congress on Obesity in Vienna, there was uh, a number of uh, presenters discussing that thing. And, and it, I hadn't seen it discussed there before, but how important it is to reduce medications because of the effect uh, they do have on weight. So say type 2 diabetes, and when I say reduce medications, reduce medications as their body needs it. So not just reducing, but, you know, if their body doesn't need it, then don't, don't have it sort of thing, which is what usually happens when you have a good lifestyle intervention happening. Mm. Um, but um, it, it's, not, it's not what happens. You know, we don't see uh, people reducing medications too often. I mean, with blood pressure, that's pretty simple because... Um, you know, people start getting lightheaded and, you know, that, that's kind of a forced thing. What often happens with type 2 diabetes, and once again, remember, the only real treatment for type 2 diabetes is weight loss. Yeah, you know, all the medications are about lowering um, lowering uh, blood glucose, but it's, it's not, uh, it, not going to be something that's going to turn the disease around. It just slows the progress, which is why they call it a progressive disease if you follow those guidelines, mm. you know, but you know, it's um, as soon as someone's blood sugars start dropping and they're on insulin, what do they get told? Eat more carbs. 
So you've got people who aren't tolerating carbs too well, aren't processing carbs too well. They're taking insulin, which is going to store fat, you know, and then they get told to eat more as they're progressing. So they're actually doing really, really well. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're losing weight. And as they lose weight, their blood sugars improve as well. And they get told to eat more food. And usually it's before they go to bed because a lot of people have hypos overnight. So check your sugars before you go to bed. If they're too low, it's not don't reduce your, your uh, doses. It's now eat more. <laughs> yeah, that goes, goes with what I was saying about those two patients. So this dose in the morning, this dose at night. Oh, make sure you check your blood sugar and eat accordingly. And, and, and like, like you say, then about you know, the treatments to do well. And you, you see that with bariatric surgery. They get the surgery, they lose the weight, and then five, ten years down the track, they're back to where they were. <laughs> um, mm. So that's, that's where I guess your lifestyle intervention is the actual cure and treatment. The, the other thing is just the Band-Aid to help. Yeah, nothing else works without it. And don't get me wrong, some people are, be, are, be, are well suited to bariatric surgery, although it's never, ever the first uh, step. You know, I think sort of women, once they're over 130, uh, and uh, 130 kilos or guys over 170, you know, like you can sort of start considering. But there's, we, we've had plenty of people, you know, get their weight right down uh, around those weights and, and much bigger. I think usually like average in, on our programs about 12 to 17 kilos in 10 weeks. And that's just with fresh, fresh food. That's no supplements, no nothing. And, but we, we get plenty of people that are more than that. We've had like, yeah, that with the giants program, GWS giants, um, have me organise their community program where we put uh, some of their fans through uh, through uh, our program. And the first 68 that have been through it have lost a total of 1,055 kilos in the 12 weeks of the program. And this is over the phone. So we, we meet them for their first way in. We meet them for their last way in. We, have, we do have a couple of barbecues in there just to catch up. But there's no supervised uh, cooking sessions or... Um, or uh, exercise sessions. It's purely just you know, over the phone, ring them once a week, five, 10 minutes. Hey, how you going? They tell us how they're going. We give them strategies. Everything else is online via and via email and SMSs daily and like automated SMSs through to maintain motivation. And it's just designed to work. So that, that's, that's what it's about. We just identify obstacles and then just build things around it. And this group at the moment, what we've got 32 people in this current group and in the first 10, 11 days, they're at about 191 kilos as a group. So, yeah, that'll slow down. But, um, look, by the end, if they can average around 15 kilos, uh, which is what, what most people do, then that's going to be you know, sweet for all of them. Absolutely. So is this being uh, documented in some way? Is, is there a case, case report coming out of this? or? Yeah, well, I will be doing some research through all this sort of stuff because it, it does need to be. I'm currently in talks with um, the health department on uh, providing their own independent report so we can sort of look to spread it around the country a bit more. But uh, that, that's going pretty well. Obviously, they're pretty impressed with the results. We, we get a lot of people off medication, especially blood pressure. It's a, probably one of the most common ones. So that, that's an easy one. Diabetes, you know, that, that that's... Uh, yeah, a lot of people will come down off medication or off metformin as a drug. A lot of doctors will still like to keep people on it after their blood sugars come good, just because it's a drug that can assist with maintaining weight loss. They feel so. 
you know, sometimes people won't come off metformin unless they actually ask and say, yeah, look, I, I don't want to take it anymore. Mm. But, uh, you know, the, the, the results are all there. Like, it's it's proven, you know. Uh, so, you know yeah, what, what um, sort of got you motivated to get into the master's research? Did someone tap you on the shoulder or? Well, they- actually... I'd always wanted to, but I just don't have time. I really, I've got five kids as well, by the way. So young kids and, you know, I'm very heavily involved in their school and all that sort of stuff as well, balancing it all out. But yeah, my um, course coordinator for my master's in education uh, was always in my ear about I should be doing research. Uh, she wanted to do also wanted me to go along the lines of role modeling for teenage kids because I, I had a bit of a rough upbringing in terms of life around all that sort of stuff. So I've, I've got a good story to tell with that. And she thought that that would be a good area to study. But I just felt dry. I felt I had to do diabetes because it is just does my head in just the, the quality of information that's available to patients. Um, there, there, there's a lot of information but there's not a lot that people can comprehend. And just in some of our research we've done already, you know, patients are, the, the most common theme is I get told things, but I don't understand it. That's it. That, that's in a nutshell what a lot of people struggle with. So, yeah, they get these plates and they get these leaflets and they go and see the dietitian, and the physiologist and all that, but they don't understand it. They don't comprehend it. Like they, they just nod their head and, and go and do their best. Yeah, and that's and that's why when I ask them a question about it, they're like, "Not sure, sorry." <laughs> that's it, and and so with our program, it's all based around education, but education without them feeling like they're sitting in a classroom. So there's little things, and uh, the most common theme is that uh, that the people bring up is that Ray gets inside your head, and we have these videos at seven a.m. every morning, and um, yeah, they're just thirty ninety second video, and I just speak straight to them, you know, like I just call it all you know, and just let them know that, uh, you know, well, you're bullshitting to yourself or, or, you know, that's, that's common. Don't worry about that. You just keep pushing through. You're going to get those thoughts. You're going to feel like doing this. That's all cool. So just, it gives people that confidence because when it comes to lifestyle change, confidence is everything, you know, that that's what gets you through um, in those tough times, you know, late at night watching TV, <laughs> sitting there going, I'm hungry. No, I'm not really hungry. I'm just bored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you guys, what, what sort of tools do you get access to? Is, is there a push to have continuous glucose meters or anything like that? Or is, are they even measuring their blood glucose? What, what's the, what yeah, I, I would love to have more glucose monitors. We're just getting uh, a nurse practitioner at some of the remote programs uh, soon. Well, ho- hopefully within the next few weeks. And um, and that, that will be involved. I, I would really, I, I like using them for myself just to, test and they they provide such great feedback Uh, but you know cost and all that sort of stuff but I think for any patient that's on insulin I think they should be utilizing those sort of tools I think it gives them good uh, real-time feedback Uh, these days you know through apps or just you know waving and all that with the uh, implants and stuff like that Um, but yeah they're not being utilized a lot most of our patients will just do the finger prick test most mornings, uh, that's the main one I'd like is, is first thing in the morning. Uh, but they'll also usually do it before they go to bed, especially if they're um, on insulin. Uh, then um, we, we do HbA1c at the start of the program and at the end of the program as well. Nice. So how long is the program? 
usually 10 weeks. So some, with the Giants program, we did a couple of 12 weekers, but it's primarily 10 weeks. Nice. Yeah, that's the program itself, but we teach skills on how to keep progressing forward or how to maintain. And and are they dealing this as a group or um, sort of one-on-one or do they, like you said, you had a couple of barbecues, but um, those involved in the program, do they get together much? and not really um the, the giants one we have a we do the barbecue but with the remote programs it's just in the in the country towns they'll just come in sometimes there might be a couple of family members doing it together but pretty much they do it on their own uh, some of them have organized their own walking groups and things like that so they're very important uh, but but in general no it's, it's all about um taking responsibility that's what we teach people take responsibility it's not, it's not about who's to blame or anything like that it's just this is what it, this is what's happening right now how do you fix it you know you're responsible for your own body so you know do what needs to be done no so i saw on your website you've got sort of a way of approaching problems um that you probably touched on it right then here's the here there is the problem then here's our steps that we need to take to get to the solution where does that come from I think my planning background, like I said, I, I was designing uh, athlete programs for the course of, you know, four years uh, at a time sometimes. So for development programs and I just, planning's everything. You don't have to follow the plan to the letter, but it, it works as a very good guide. And that's probably what I learned best about dealing with athletes. So I brought that across to lifestyle interventions. So everything's planned out to the nth degree and and analyzed and reevaluated a couple of times a year you know i'll have ideas mulling over sometimes for six months before i go no okay that that can actually fit in the program i can do that because the the main thing about the program is it has to be easy to understand that that's that's the trick and and that's probably the thing i sit back sometimes and think people just would not appreciate like because you'd look at the program you go oh yeah it makes sense but there's so much thought. So it's not only what's in there, it's what's not in there. And it's when things are entered in and the, the, the language around it that's used. And it's just it's been a lot of work. Yeah, it's been a lot of work. But, yeah, it, it, that's why it, you know, it works really well. Nice, mate. So you mentioned that you came from a bit of a um, tough upbringing. Um, what's, what's, what is, what's the story there, man? Well, anyone that's from Sydney knows Mount Druitt. <laughs> So I'm originally from Tamworth area, my family, but um, you know I, I spent the first ten years of my life in Mount Druitt in Howzo there, and um, well, you know, didn't have a good family life. We'll just put it that way, and um, probably you know got in trouble with the police for the first time at the age of eight, and then started you know smoking pot and everything at fourteen. So I moved up to the country at eleven, um, and uh, my mum and dad had divorced, and sort of went up there and just was running a muck right throughout my high school years. But the, the crazy thing was sport was what always kept me in. I only went to school and I was all right at school. I was actually pretty good, but I didn't think I was. I, I sort of had a low self-esteem and really didn't think very highly of myself, you know, like through all the struggles that I'd had as a young kid. Um, and so I really didn't think I was that smart, but I was really smart actually. When I look back, I go, God, I, I never studied, never did assignments or anything, but blitzed everything. You know, I was always in, the, in some of the top classes across a lot of the subjects, but I, I never thought I was very smart. It's crazy how your mind works, you know? Um, so anyway, long story short, you know, just left school at 16 and just really spiraled out of control with drugs and alcohol uh, and fighting and all those sorts of things, yeah, those stupid, risky behaviours. Um, and uh, and then basically at the age of 20, 
um, a lot of us coming down off LSD and uh, one, blo one bloke stabbed another bloke and that was sitting there coming down and talking to my mates and just going to two of my mates who I'm still really good mates with today, you know, just went, no, nah, I can't keep doing this. Like all these guys in and out of jail and, you know, I hadn't been to jail or anything and it was just, like, I just can't keep doing this. You know, like I, I had to have a go. I didn't think I could do it. And don't get me wrong, I never thought I could do anything like what I've done <laughs> since. But, you know, I thought if I can just get a full-time job, yeah, that, that was it. That was doing anything. So I wasn't, there was not a lot of work around. I wasn't working. Um, so I started off just, yeah, painting the houses. I, I got sort of uh, just as a, um, a labourer with a painting crew. And so I was just sanding houses and cutting in and all that sort of stuff. So I started with that and then started, I, one of my mates who was rebuilding a Harley for a, um, a guy who owned a local gym. I mean, a real small PCYC gym. Uh, he said, oh, look, this bloke's trying to turn his life around. Can you, can you uh, help him out? Because I moved away from that other town. Like I just moved away three weeks later and just wanted to start from scratch. And, uh, yeah, just sort of started picking up weights uh, in that gym. And back then you, you didn't just become a personal trainer, you know, like you had to sort of pick up weights for a while and learn the, learn the ropes. And that's where you learn the most is on the floor talking to people. And I learned a lot that way. Yeah, so, you know, it was a crazy, crazy time spiralling out of control massively, massively. I, I never thought I would live to be 22. There was just so many stories I could talk about, you know, just even, you know, being um, yeah, held captive by a couple of drug dealers when I was 17. And I boxed at 47 kilos at that age. So I was a small bloke. And overnight, they're holding my legs out, trying to jump on my legs, break my legs, and I just fought them off. And uh, like in this house, I was locked in this house there. And uh, yeah, I thought I was going to die that night, and I really did. But it didn't change. I, I just kept doing what I was doing. Just you know, got out with a few splits, a few stitches on either either eye, and crazy times. It's like a lifetime ago though. But um, and then sort of yeah, just I guess I I kind of felt backed into a corner in the end that I either had to really have a crack or it was just going, you know, I'd be in jail or dead, you know, like I, I knew that for sure. So that's where it all started. And I just started trying to read things. I didn't have much money. So I was just trying to get books where I could and read and there was no internet then either. So, you know, you couldn't sort of learn that way. So I was just trying to just be a sponge, just try and learn. And, and the more I got into it, the, the better it was. But even like within six months of being in the industry, my boss at the time was going, oh, mate, because I'd always talk myself down, oh, you know, like, you know, if I could, you know, one day just, you know, get a full-time job in this town, I'd be right. He goes, mate, I can see you being, you know, the best in the country. Like he was saying, mate, you are so passionate and you've got a real gift for this. And I honestly thought he was just being a nice bloke. He probably was. <laughs> he probably was, by the way. But back in 91, he was saying that to me. And I look back now and shake my head going, man, how crazy is that? And then back then, seriously, I thought if I got a full-time job in Sydney working in a gym, I've made it. <laughs> and the stuff I've done since, you know, like if I lost my job today, I wouldn't be working in a gym in Sydney, you know. So, you know, so it's, um, it's crazy. Crazy ride. But, you know, I never forget, I, uh, all my mates will tell you, like a lot of my good friends are friends I've had since those days uh, that turned their life around as well. Uh, we've stayed pretty solid. And, um, yeah, look, they'll all tell you, I'm pretty much the same bloke. I just don't do that stupid shit anymore. But, <laughs> you know, it, um, 
it's yeah, I think that that's why I'm really good with the whole research side of things. I don't just believe people. I'm a pretty street smart guy, so I, I don't take everything at face value. You know, I um, I like to think about things. I, I love a good debate, but a respectful debate. Like, if you've got an opinion, you can't expect to put your opinion out there and not have people question it. Like, who does that? You're not intelligent if you do that. Like. I want people to tell me what they disagree with because I want them to try and convert me because I want to learn. You know mm. what I mean? Like, like, like with Lane, like there's guys around who you know, can really improve your understanding uh, because you might be looking at it from a totally different perspective, which you usually would because you've got different experiences, different life experiences. So even for you, you know, growing up in New Zealand and myself being from Mount Druid, or we, we see different things. You know what I mean? Growing up and, and we're trained under different people and we study under different people and we follow different people on social media. So there's so much we can all teach each other. And going in with, no, my way or the highway, just seriously, I, I don't respect people like that purely because I just don't think they're very smart. Like, and that's, you know, that's not to be mean. That's just because I feel that's a choice. As far as not being smart, I'm not talking about their IQ. I'm talking about being set in their ways. And you can't do that when you work in any industry. No, that's that's right. And and I guess that's is a little bit of what you end up with with uh, the medical system is is it's a little bit set in its ways, and and that's why people sometimes get in trouble when they look at something a little bit different. Mate, um, you said there that you managed to take yourself away from it and, and, and move to another town. Do you do you know what? drove that decision was that something that you that you knew was the case do you think maybe moving away from mount druid was, was a similar thing or or yeah i didn't have a choice well i kind of had a choice my parents had broke up and i my mum uh had uh, like i've got a twin sister and she'd moved away with my twin sister just um and so there was uh four of us with my dad still and I, I was very close with my mum, so you know it was only a matter of time before I went there, and I, I knew that I had to get out of there. Like it was, it was crazy then. I knew that as a ten-year-old, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. Look, I, 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 I know that back then it was through a fear, um, like as in when, when I turned it around finally, it was a fear. I, I just knew where it was all going. I'd seen it with other friends, and you know. I just, I just, I guess deep inside, I thought I could do better. I just didn't know how. I really didn't know how. I, I had no clue what the first step was. And, you know, as, you know, someone who is really good at, you know, um, analysing things and, and being a critical thinker these days, I can look back now and, and just, man, I was so lost, but so, so wanting to be helped but didn't know how to be helped. Um, I was still in the whole mode of um, yeah, blaming others for my problems. That was, a, that was a big stepping stone actually, was accepting that I've got an influence on everything that's ever happened in my life, positive and negative. So I always use the sort of explanation like, or the example of, you know, like say you're going through a, a T intersection and someone you know, runs through a red light and smashes into you. Well, you've got to take some blame for that. It's not your fault because the person ran the red light, but, you know, you've got to take as much care as you can. And, and there's some responsibility still there on you. 
and, and some people find that a bit ludicrous to be thinking like that, but it's the only way to progress forward in life. If, if you're blaming someone, you're never, ever moving forward, ever. Mm. You know, you're always, always dwelling on that. But when you accept responsibility to some extent, even the smallest, you get to grow. You get to move past it and, and leave that stuff behind. Um, probably yeah, one of the best things I've learned over the years, I, I think. so. Yeah. Nice. Um, and you said you had somebody, you know, give you a hand and tell the Jamona that you're trying to turn your life around. How important um, was it to have someone like that? And, and I'm sure you've had plenty of mentors throughout the rest of your life as well that have given you a hand out. Yeah, I have. And, and, and I guess that's one thing with research you start learning is all these successful people, no one ever does it on their own. Like, you know, like a lot of people would look at people and the example we studied was Stephen Hawking's, you know, based, you know, in a wheelchair and using uh, others to, to research and all that sort of thing. He's a very intelligent man, but he'd be nowhere without the team of people that worked around him mm. or nowhere where he achieved. Uh, but yeah, look, what do I owe him? <laughs> you know, but it's even guys back when I was 17 and when I first left school, there was a local police boys club cop. I was boxing back then and he, he was trying to raise money to get so, so that I could actually go back to school so I could fund me to go back to school. So he saw that in me then, but I didn't see it. And, and to tell you the truth, it's people like that who, when I was ready to change, that would, that was what gave me confidence to give it a go. Cause it was scary and I was uh, crazy. Like I, I, I thought I would fail and I didn't like failing and that's why I didn't attempt things. <laughs> you know, as now I, I, I actually attempt everything uh, that I want to and know I'm going to fail and accept that that's just part of the process. You know, I'm going to fail in some way. It's not going to all turn out perfect for me. I'm going to have to adjust as I go. And that's important, learning how to fail, you know. And this, um, yeah, this cop, Paul McKittrick, who I'm still friends with on Facebook, I've been back and thanked him and everything. But, you know, when I was ready to change, he... You know, it was people like him that believed in me. I, I didn't have a lot of people believe in me. And I, th I thought, you know, like if this guy who is like a pillar of the community sees that in me, then there must be something. There just must be something. And like I said, my confidence was really down. I really didn't think I could do much at all. Mm. So, yeah, like between a couple of those, you know, like him and Brian Day who had the first gym, you know, it's um, it's what you need and that's what kids need. And that's why, you know, when I, I go into schools and speak in schools and, I don't charge them ever. They always say, oh, no, we've got funding for this. I can't charge people for that. Like, seriously, you know, what it's done for my life, having people believe in me, you know, like if I can change people's lives, and I go and I call a spade a spade too. I speak pretty directly. I do tell the schools I might slip out with a swear word here or there because I just get passionate and it's a story, you know, like you've got to get messages across. You know, I want to teach kids, you're not tough. Like, you're 15, 16, I thought I was tough then. I wasn't tough at all, God. You got nothing yet. You want to know tough. <laughs> yeah, you, you'll know it once you start hanging around, you know, some of those rough pubs and, and go to jail and all that. That's tough. You know, there's some tough people there. You're not tough. You know, yeah. so, and, and no, you don't want to be tough. God, that's just an illusion. You know what I mean? Like guys who go around acting tough, they get killed pretty much. So, you know. Um, and so have you done anything to sort of un unpack your, that period of your life and, and look back at, the sort of, sort of traumas and things that you, that you went through. Like one of one of the questions I've asked many people is, what's characteristics of of a five year old you that show up today? And you know, 
living in a place like that, there must have been a lot of, like you said, even the decision to leave the town when you were 20 was, was based on fear. There must have been a lot of fear motivating you. Did, does that show up today anymore or what? Uh, no, I guess my motivation these days is very different. So there's a few things I can go through. So make sure I, I go back to the unpacking and everything as well. But these days, my fear is more based around not being really good at what I do, I guess. Like, I just want to be, I don't want to necessarily be the best. Like, you know, that's, yeah, what's the best, you know what I mean? Like, I just want to be really good and really effective and certainly someone who can provide a really, really good service and, and you know, like, maybe do some great research that can make an impact, you know, across the globe and that sort of thing. So I, I, I've been saying for years, you know, I, I want to change the world and people would laugh and I'm serious. I do. I, you know, I want to change the way these diseases are treated because we can, we can do way better, you know, but on the, um, on the unpacking, like it was probably only about 2011, 2012 that I actually talk about all that stuff I've spoken about today um so it, it wasn't that long 49 now it's taken that long for me to be able to talk about it publicly um i guess i was a little embarrassed in some ways fears of being judged in another way but it's also just very raw you know like i mean yeah very raw there's so many stories i could go through you know and just quite personal you know and and i, I wasn't sexually abused or anything like that but um it was the stuff i you know it was just some pretty crazy things, you know, to, for a young bloke to deal with and, uh, and get through. And, um, yeah, I'll definitely, will unpack and I have uh, to some extent, I actually, um, listened to Russell Brand's podcast. I got him through Joe Rogan actually. So I listened to him on there and I always thought he's a pretty smart sort of guy, but I thought he's a bit goofy at times, but then I started listening to his podcast. He's a bloody intelligent bloke. You know, I, I like the whole philosophy and all that sort of stuff as well. And, he, um, I, I thought I'd listen to his 12 steps and can't recommend that highly enough. God, it's a laugh. There's a lot of swearing in it just so, so people know and uh, that'll either attract you or push you away. But it's, it's actually really good. If you're a salt of the earth kind of person, then uh, it's, it's one that uh, will be good for you to listen to. But it made me real. Like I always had in the back of my mind that I had a problem with people leaving me, like just with different things that happened in my life, you know. Um, and I might, I might have had an issue with that, but after listening to his podcast, like, so his 12 step series, just that, that was the thing that jumped out at me. It wasn't that, um, I had a problem with people leaving me. It was, my issue was that I was more inclined to push them away if I felt that they didn't believe in me anymore. Like they gave up on me, if they gave up on me. That, 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 in <laughs> it was like, this was only a few weeks ago, I came across this and I went, that's my, that, that is probably one of the most underlying issues I have um, is that, you know, people giving up on me because, you know, I try my hardest and don't get me wrong, it's not something that eats away at me today, but if I was to have a look in my past life as a kid going through up to, you know, say even maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, yeah, like if, if people were to start doubting what I was doing, I'd be more likely just to push them away mm. uh, and just, say, well, okay, get out of my life then kind of thing. And, and it wasn't an arrogant thing. It was a uh, lack of confidence thing and a, a lack of trust thing. It was crazy. Like I still can't comprehend why 
but it's it is what it is, you know. And um, and I mean, I, I understand how it got to that point, but it doesn't make sense to me as the person I am. You know what I mean? Like I'm a pretty easygoing bloke, and I accept people people's differences all you know right through. And you know, I try to get on. I try to see the positive in everyone. Don't get me wrong. I you know I'm not going to put up with crap from anyone. I'm Still, you know, I still train a lot and uh, started martial arts at the age of four. So I'm, I'm not going to just wilt away in the back docks and sort of let people walk over me. I'm, I'm definitely not that person. I'm very easy going. But, you know, I often say, like, I, I try to work with people, but if they get in my way, we just bulldoze them. So. <laughs> nice, mate. The, um, the sort of self-esteem thing is, is something that I, I dealt with as well. And one of the ways to reframe it was sort of if... Um, somebody else was telling you what they're going through, what would you sort of say to them? And, you know, you kind of look at it and go, oh, I'm being, I'm being a little bit a little bit odd about that. Mate, we've both just had, you know, you especially right then, quite an honest conversation as, as two guys that have spoken once before. You know, you've, you've, you mentioned off here that you're doing some work with, with the Aboriginal community um, out of something sad in a suicide. Um, Saying about you know, it's it's good to talk about these sort of things. What what's what are you doing there, man? Yeah, well, this stems from a mate of mine, Matt Simpson, took his life earlier this year. He's an Aboriginal man, and he was a um, sports conditioner up and coming, like a good-looking bloke, strapping bloke too. Like you know, really fit. If you looked at him, you would think, mate, this guy's full of confidence. He's just the picture of health. You know, always big smiles. You know. Um, yeah, he sort of done some tours with some American colleges, training some uh, athletes, and like you know, he he had the world at his feet, and yeah, just things that happened when he was younger, and he struggled to deal with, and he took his own life, and it was uh, probably about two weeks later, the New South Wales ESSA board, so that's Exercise and Sports Science Australia, asked me if I'd come on board as their Indigenous Projects Officer. Uh, so I'm Aboriginal, I'm from. Uh, the Gomeroy area or Camilla Roy area near Tamworth. And um, yeah, I, I look, I, I, the the crew they've got there at the moment were really motivating. They were doing a lot of work in general outside of their area. So I, I took it on board. I said, look, I'm pretty busy, but let's see what we can do. And first thing I put to them was uh, something that Matt's wife, Christy, had been working on, which was a hashtag of talk to me, bro. And they've got a whole movement on Facebook. So chase them up, uh, talk to me, bro. So it's, Talk as in T A L K two letter two uh, number two, uh, bro. Uh, check him out on Facebook. Good group. Anyway, so um, we we got that, and then we got uh, Richie Allen, who's one of my old mates from home, and he's uh, he does a lot of traditional work down around um, Canberra these days. Mister Nunawal on um, on Twitter. He's he's got a great following there. He's a really motivating guy, but. Formerly played for the Roosters. We don't hold that against him. I'm a Rabbitohs man. And, you know, Roosters won the grand final last night. But, you know, he's <laughs> <brother. former> Roosters. <laughs> yeah, he's actually like a, an ex-champion footy player. And, and another one who we've helped go into remission for type 2 diabetes, by the way. Awesome. So he, um, he did the artwork. Uh, and we put these posters together and we launched it at the recent uh, symposium for exercise scientists in Sydney. So that'll be going out across the state. But yeah, no, really important. It's just about getting men talking about their problems. Um, I <laughs> definitely one that uh, I'd keep things to myself a lot. Uh, I guess I was raised by a, um, a bull rider who 
was just a tough bloke, you know, and he just sort of dealt with things like that. Um, but I guess for me, I need to get things right in my own head before I can communicate them. And that's what I was saying. Like it took until, you know, just a number of years ago, you know, six years ago till I could even speak publicly about uh, a lot of the stuff uh, from my, you know, um, junior life. So, but it's, it's, it is so important to talk and um, there, there's so many great online groups. And, and when I went through a divorce, um, you know, a few years back, I, where, you know, I, I really was struggling. I had friends everywhere, you know. I mean, I know a lot of people, but it wasn't like I, I couldn't talk to them. I knew I had to speak to someone because I was missing my kids a lot. I was just seeing them every day and it was cut down quite a lot. Uh, everything's good now, by the way. So, yeah, we uh, just about to take them out the bush soon. So we, we've got everything going well. But during that, into anyone has been through a divorce will know, like those first three to six months are terrible. Um, Mentally, but I, I jumped onto a couple of the um, phone phone in places where you could be anonymous. That was important to me. It needed to be anonymous. So I had a bit of a profile. At that stage, I was on a bit of TV, and uh, I really didn't want anyone knowing what I was going through because I, I couldn't deal with it myself. I, I couldn't get my head around it myself. So I just couldn't have people asking me about it and, and bringing it up, it, no matter how well-intentioned. And it was great. Like, I didn't like what they said to me at times. <laughs> you know, I wanted people to agree with me, yeah. not question what, why I was thinking that way and what it mattered. Like, the best thing it was was, well, why does it matter? You know, because I didn't understand the situation. Well, if you understood, what would it change? It was pretty true, you know. Like, at the time, I hated it. I was going, did you guys get paid to say this? <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't happy at all. I want people to feel sorry for me. No, <laughs> but it was like, yeah, it was, it was bloody good advice. You know, it took me a few days to get my head around it. But, yeah, I sort of was shaking my head afterwards going, they're good. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, so, yeah, it's just so important to talk. And like I said, I've got some really good friends that I could have just phoned up, but I just couldn't talk to them about those things at that point. Um, they were too involved. You know what I mean? They, they knew all parties and... And I knew they were pretty solid with me. They're good friends, but yeah, look, it just wasn't something that worked. That's why, like, sometimes speaking to your physiologist or your optometrist, or you know, it, it can it can help. You know, and you just got to have that good connection with people. Beautiful, mate. So, if people want to track you down and, and track down what you do, where can they find it? Yeah, mate. Well, um, I'm over all the social media, so yeah, Insta, Twitter, and um, and Facebook, just at Ray Kelly Fitness. So just R-A-Y-K-E-L-L-Y-F-I-T-N-E-S-S. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sort of active on that sort of stuff. Um, the Facebook stuff's generally fairly community sort of based tips and things like that. Uh, I guess the Twitter's a bit more political. Um, I just find it's a better platform for that. There's, I think it's a smarter platform for that. You know, like I think there's some really good intelligent people on there. Um, and not the Facebook. Facebook's just more, yeah, you kick about sort of thing. So, yeah, we'll have our, like, just nice fluffy stories on there, whereas if I'm going to get brutal on anything, it's usually on Twitter. Twitter. I'm pretty easy going, but sometimes I'll just have a bit of a vent and, yeah, I welcome any challenges, don't worry, so I don't mind. But <laughs> only because, like, it's, it's so important that these topics get discussed. So just to give you an idea, things like racism, you know, like a lot of people think, you know, racism shouldn't be discussed. But it has to be discussed. Like, and that's one thing I'm passionate about. Like, yeah, otherwise it just goes underground, you know, and it gets discussed and all these myths get perpetuated. 
you know, if, if you want to bring a racist undone, give them rope. <laughs> give them more airtime so that we can pick them apart. We can, we can show what, why what they're saying it just doesn't make sense. It's the best way. So, but that's the same thing for um, all the health-related topics as well. I think, like, give everyone a voice. You know, like, once you get people confident and talking, yeah, you, you'll soon work out who's got holes in their stories and who doesn't. That's for sure. Yeah, mate. Um, you, you talked about the people's perception of, of things and coming from New Zealand and New Zealand Day is Waitangi Day, and I was driving home on Friday night, and you know, this debate's going on about well, should Australia Day be moved? Uh, should there be an Aboriginal Acknowledgement Day? Um, with the first few weeks I came here, there was the um, National Aboriginal and I think it's like Islanders or something Day, Tory Strait and stuff. Yeah, no, doctor. Yeah, and, you know, they had a parade down the street, and I thought, oh, that's cool. And if, you know, everybody else is going, oh, they're holding up the street. And I thought, well, what are you talking about? And, and so, well. Where do you stand on moving, moving in Australia Day or changing the name or, or moving it around or acknowledging well, yeah. them? I'm open to anything on that, but I think that the, the big issue is that Australians don't know their history. Yeah. So the history of Australia. The problem is it was very open up until about 1880 and then after Federation, everything in 1901, it got cleansed to be, oh, no, you know, the English came here and developed and they got on really well with the Aborigines and, you know, it's, um, and it was just like, yeah, there were some people that, some bad black fellows who, you know, did, did bad things and we had to sort of clean them up. But overall, it was all, all good. Nothing can be further from the truth. Like, we've just, there's been a long history of state-sanctioned murders, uh, massacres, um, and then even just throughout the 1900s, you know, like laws set to control Aboriginal people, where they can live, whether they can travel, whether they can marry, like all these sorts of things. And we've got people alive today who lived through that sort of stuff. And, you know, they, they like modern Australians say, oh, I won't have to big, dig up the past. Nothing's been dug up. It's never been buried by Aboriginal people. It's been passed on, all the stories, you know. And you, you wouldn't ever have a celebration of any kind on a day that's, associated with the Holocaust. Mm. You know what I mean? You would never do that. It just doesn't make sense, you know? And a lot of people are fixed on, you know, January 26th as being, um, yeah, the, the, the start of Australia. But when Like some people think it's when Captain Cook arrived. No, it wasn't. Uh, some people think, you know, it's the start of the country. No, it wasn't. You know, like it, it was the start of the, the ships that came in. And even that I think was a few days before. <laughs> but, you know, there's so much conjecture and it also only has become a holiday more recently. So it hasn't been this long-standing historical thing. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, Aboriginal people have got all these, like they've got sorry day and all that. So what they're saying, first of all, who celebrates those sorts of things? But they're saying, oh, so on the day that the Prime Minister said, sorry for the government stealing your children, <laughs> um, you're supposed to celebrate that and be happy that, and that, that's the problem. Aboriginal people are supposed to be happy that they're getting at least that. You know what I mean? Like, are you kidding? Like, you know, like, this is why this discussion has to be made. And, and like I said, I, I don't mind. They can keep it, change it, whatever they like. But it, it is, but Australian people need to know the history of this country. And I'm a proud Australian. You know, I'm a very proud Australian. But 
too often it gets like people want to discuss, well, if you're talking about that, you're unpatriotic and you hate the country. No, <laughs> you can be, you can identify historical facts and discuss historical facts and still be proud of the country that you're in today and the development that's come to, to that. You can still do that. So it's not an either or, or you know what I mean? Like it, it's, um, but look, there, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of history that Australians don't know and, um, and a lot of culture that was killed off. Um, this, this is why I love going out to Burke and Brewarren and there's still good culture out there and, you know, it's just, um, it's a very rich area, a very rich area culturally and whereas where I grew up, you know, like people were just, you know, no one was allowed to speak their languages or you know, not allowed to dance ceremonies or anything like that. So it was all just after generation, generation. And that was the other thing, like, you know, up until... Uh, the 1960s, late 1960s, Aboriginal people didn't have that sort of equality of pays and and, um, and and that right to vote and all these sorts of things that come with it. So they've had to learn how to work within that system as well. So there's always going to be hiccups and hurdles within that because there's also that sort of that uh, racism that still lingers with some of the older people that pass down to their children yeah, some of the misconceptions like, say, alcohol abuse. If you have a look, like when people talk about Aboriginal health, they'll always bring up, if they haven't lived around there, they'll always bring up alcohol abuse. But when you have a look at the stats from the, the government census stats, you know, th there's not much difference between abuse of alcohol between Aboriginal community and the rest of Australia. There's not actually, I think it's 2014, 2015, the ones I saw, it was about 2% lower or something for Aboriginal community. If you're speaking remote, that's different and that's different social issues, but you can't just brand, you know, a whole group of people from all over the country as having alcohol problems purely because it's the stereotype, you know, just based on something you've seen on TV uh, for remote Australia. Um, but also housing, you know, in Australia, we always hear about this, you know, houses getting burnt down and torn around by Aboriginal people, but it was a really good... Um, study done by I think it's Health Habitat and they looked at something like 8,200 houses and found that only 8% of the damage was done by the tenant. The uh, And just remember this is community housing so I'm sure it'd be more you know within other communities around the country but 70% had uh, it was just poor maintenance just they weren't uh, kept up by the owners of the houses, they're the, the government groups or whatever that were looking after. They just, and I think like 16% had a working kitchen and all these sort of things. And they, they all contribute to health outcomes. Mm. Yet we'll sort of hear that, but this is, these are the facts, you know, it's, it's crazy. Once you start digging, it's amazing where the hole goes. And, and I only deal with facts. I only just deal with just purely what's there, not people's stories, but you know, I've, I've seen these, uh, this stuff for myself. And even with, uh, say like sexual abuse, you'll hear about sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities. Um, I've spoken recently with someone who works in uh, family services and they've said the big area is actually non-Indigenous people. The big growth area is non-Indigenous partners uh, sexually abusing Aboriginal children. And you, you won't see that in the um, headlines, you know. But, you know, I saw a story whilst I was working out at Burke, uh, I think maybe the Sun-Herald, um, where they spoke to two local girls about sexual abuse and then they, and this was a historical, but they tried to make out that Burke had a problem and they linked it to 
uh, Tennant Creek where that um, young child got sexually abused. So there was no link between these stories at all, but they just tried to link it in images <clears throat> on the same page. And I actually uh, spoke to the head of police out there and because he'd been telling, saying at a um, presentation that in Burke, you know, the, the um, crime stats are down the best they've been in 30 years. And I said, well, I saw this story recently on that and he's on sexual abuse. And he said, oh, he goes, yeah, no, that journalist come and saw me. And I told her that there was not a problem in town. But she just went down the street and just found some people to talk to. And so she just spoke to a couple of girls that were sitting around, you know, adults, and just spoke about their past. And they told their stories about, you know, many years ago. But they linked the story to make out like there was a current problem there. Yeah. So, and that's what we see. And that, that's why people have these impressions. So that's why you've got to really just check it out for yourself. Yeah, even on my, my doorstep here at, in Ballina, um, we walk along a, a wee path that's got a number of murals that sort of explains the area, but um, there's a little sand dune that separates the beach that we're on and the beach over, and uh, a group of people came down from Queensland and, and shot up a, a whole settlement, and nobody was held accountable for that, and like there's a memorial there, but you just sort of look at that and go, well, that's, you know, that was, you can see why people have a bit of a... Um, up and you know there's plenty of stories like that in New Zealand with with um, the pioneering groups and the military groups take taking out um, Maori tribes but you know and, and we know about that in New Zealand and that's why Waitangi Day has so much con um, conjecture but when you, when you come across here and you sort of hear these you know this is only just sort of coming to the surface you go wow there's a lot there's a lot of work to do and and you know it's it's really interesting yeah, and um, like the, the the fact is that we the you know, the settlement started in Sydney and they spread out along the rivers. You know, like they had people go out there and they would have people given land. So basically, the settlers would go out and they would take part of the land, especially close to water, of course, which is obviously where the Aboriginal people were living as well. Mm. If you know, they would be eating the kangaroos and taking the water and using the land to graze. So they'd be using the Aboriginal people's land, but the Aboriginal and eating their food. But if the Aboriginal people speared one of their sheep or uh, cattle, they'd be shot. And not just one, they wanted to make an impact. They'd go shoot 20, 30 people and no one got in trouble for that. And it was basically, we have to make sure people know. They did nothing different. Like it was their land and people will say, oh, no, it wasn't. Well, the documents will show that uh, back in the 1820s, 1830s, the government of the time, like the British government and even the governors over here, w w acknowledged that um, the Aboriginal people were here first and, and it was their land. And that was put in, and that was why the Wick, um, uh, Wick versus Queensland uh, case in the 90s was such a big issue because uh, Aboriginal people wanted access to lands and the, the land, the people who had the land leases um, didn't want them on there uh, and didn't, didn't realise, the government themselves didn't even realise that when those were written way back, it actually says in there that Aboriginal people should have access to all that land as well, that, you know, because they, they are the people who were here beforehand. And so, yeah, what's John Howard do? He wants to change the laws then. But because he said, he said the pendulum had swung too far in Aboriginal people's favour. That was, it didn't swing anywhere. That's just where it was. It just wasn't, you know, it, it was just ripped off for many years. So it depends on how you look at it. But it's, it's crazy that, you know, people can think like that. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, oh, mate, look, don't even get me started on that stuff. It's just crazy. 
But the good thing is people are more open to learning these days and they're learning more. Uh, social media is great for that. Uh, but so many stories like, geez, you know, and traveling around, you, you meet a lot of people and they'll tell you stories of massacres in their areas. Um, yeah, like say Brewarrina, the famous one there is Hospital Creek. And, you know, basically two men from a different group had uh, killed a cow. But the story from the settlers was, no, they, they kidnapped one of their workers. This guy was never identified and never found or, you know, said he was retrieved or anything. So there's no name to this bloke that was apparently kidnapped. But they went up river and they went to a different group. They didn't really care because all Aboriginal people were the same back then, they thought. And, uh, yeah, they killed anywhere between 200 and 400 people. That's women, children and men that were just innocent. They had nothing to do with stealing that cattle at all, nothing. They were just set up camp on the river. They just come in with their guns, bang, bang, wipe out a whole group. And there's plenty of stories. There's actually a map being done now. Uh, one of the universities were, were setting it up. So you might want to check that out. And it goes through all the um, massacres across Australia in red dots. And there's a lot of red dots. Like I said, this isn't about guilt. See, people get caught up in, oh, it wasn't me. Like, no one's saying it's you. Like, it's, it's not about guilt. It's not about blame. It's about acknowledgement. And it's just not acknowledged. And if it is, it's always like, oh, that was long ago. <laughs> yeah, like, like you know, the, like World War One. you know. <laughs> we celebrate that every year, you know, Anzac, Anzac Day and that. So oh, that was long ago. Or Australia Day, that was 1788. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's crazy. They go, oh, it's long ago. Get over it. Get over it. We wouldn't say that to people in the Bali bombing, would we? So. No, you're right. You're right. Mate, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk and we've, covered so many diverse topics that has been wicked yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you could you could go on and on you've, you've lived uh, an, an amazing and a, a intriguing life and, and i look forward to seeing the sort of things that you come up with um in the future um i'll be sure to link your details in the show notes but do you have anything that you'd like to leave people with a, a quote a thought or or an ask of the audience oh look just Pretty much, you know, we, we need to keep learning and, and don't just accept what you've been told. Like, I mean, it's, it's good. You don't want to be just denying everything. You know, you know, you don't want to be one of those sort of people. But, you know, if there's something you don't know or don't understand, read, just read. It's, it's very easy these days with the internet. But re read quality, you know, and, and, and certainly if it's your go, um, learn how to read research properly. So how to identify uh, what's quality research over the chaff sort of stuff, you know, and um, because there's going to be, there's a lot of crap out there. There really is a lot of crap. You can't just believe something because research says it because there's a lot of crap out there so that you've got to filter through. But that said, there's some really awesome stuff. And, and, and also never discount, um, yeah, testimonials and things like that because that's what inspires a lot of research. You know, you, uh, like people always, you know, go against anecdotal evidence that so you can't, take that on board. Well, you have to, it's, it's what drives research. You know, it's what gives researchers ideas. You know what I mean? Otherwise we'd just be doing the same thing over and over again. But, um, you yeah, know, just keep learning. It's, it's a fantastic world we live in. It's a very rich world that, uh, for knowledge, you know, when we've got, we're blessed to have uh, a great way to uh, keep continuing our education. So. Beautiful, mate. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And hopefully you get on that bike again soon. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, mate. As always, how good was that? Um, it's always cool to meet people that resonate very strongly 
with you every day and Ray definitely does that. I love his message at the end, always be curious, always learn more. Um, if you don't understand something, don't just reject it or poo-poo it or write it off. Challenge yourself to get after it and get an understanding of things and make an informed decision. Um, I've spoken about it many times and especially when it comes to health, make sure you're informed of, of your options, what it means for you. Um, going back to what Thomas Nabbs has said to us a couple of times with decision makers, you know, make sure that you understand the impacts of your decision and that can apply from a personal aspect as well. Make sure if you're making a decision for yourself about your livelihood, about um, your family's livelihood, that you understand exactly what it is that you're making in that decision. Um, as I said, it's, uh, as Ray said, sorry, it's fine to fail and a fear of failure is is just going to hold you back from achieving things. Um, so accept that giving things a go is going to result in failure, but also realize that failure is going to teach you a lot. I put up a good quote from Mark Twain the other day on at Stag Vision, and that was um, something around courage is not a fear of failure or an absence of failure. It's the ability to continue on doing the things that you're passionate about. Now, that's not exactly right, but it's along those lines. Of course, our podcast is brought to you by Waikito, W-A-I-K-E-T-O on Facebook. If you want to get in touch with me to get your hands on exogenous ketones, if you're a New Zealander, I know our audience in New Zealand's um, quite large. It's, it's where the predominant amount of our listeners come from. Those who are listening in the States and Australia and Canada, and if we are reaching anybody in Asia, you can go directly to waiket0.proveitnow.com and punch in your details and get yourself an order of exogenous ketones. If you were listening to that Joe Rogan podcast with Lane Norton and Dom D'Agostino, uh, Dom D'Agostino goes into some of the amazing benefits of being not only in ketosis but from taking exogenous ketones, um, improving insulin sensitivity, um, helping to gain greater clarity, greater blood glucose control, um, look after your brain health is what he originally designed it for, helping those um, Navy SEALs on the rebreathers to prevent seizures. Of course, there's some benefits there for epilepsy. And in my own case, it helps to hopefully repair the brain, preserve the brain after having a couple of head injuries and when it comes to sport just give me exceptional clarity exceptional energy and awesome recovery so exogenous ketones waikete0.proveitnow.com if you're in those areas otherwise contact us at waiketo's facebook page or on my at stag vision on instagram thanks so much for listening awesome to bring you another stellar episode hope you enjoyed it i would love to hear from you with any feedback be sure to contact Ray himself. Cheers.